0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Roanoke Park area. Take our Bibles and open to Galatians chapter 3. And this evening we're in the last section of this chapter. And I find this to be just a most interesting part of Paul's letter as he continues to discuss the way that God uses the law to break us and to bring us to the foot of the cross where we find our only hope of salvation. And this is really a critically important study because Paul's method of salvation, Jesus' method of salvation, God's method of salvation, stands against all the other... Methods, all the other ways that there are in the world. Our religion, Christianity, stands against all of the others. And as we studied before, all of the world's religions can be reduced to one of two methods of salvation. Either salvation is by what we do, or salvation is by what God does. And whenever we think of religion, I, I, I think most of us in America, we, we really only think about two religions most of the time. We think of Christianity and Islam. And I think that's because, of course, Christianity is our heritage, and you have some people who say, well, we do live in a Christian nation. But I think we, we, we think of Islam as the other, na- uh, other religion because that's the one that's really uh, our chief antagonist. And I know that our political leaders try to separate Islam from nations that don't support terrorism and so on. And so they try to make what we're facing here a fight of America against Afghanistan or America against Iran, America against Syria and so on. When really I think that we're only fooling ourselves because I believe that we're engaged in a war that is America against Islam. It is a religious war because you just can't separate those people from their faith. And that being said, I think it's very uh, strange that Christianity today is actually more identifiable with Islam than it is with Christ. The the driving force behind terrorism of course is islam and those are people that think that they can be right with god if they kill infidels strangely enough the roman catholic church tried the same thing centuries ago is that they thought that uh, the way to be right with god was to kill everybody that disagreed with them now in both cases what we're talking about is is man's activity versus god's activity as the means uh, of being right with god and we have that same struggle in religion today, it's being discussed here in the book of Galatians, although Paul is not talking about killing people, that, that's not what he's speaking of, uh, not as a way to be right with God, but he is talking about the fundamental religious issue that's behind all of this. Islam is what you would call legalism run amok. And the Inquisition of the Roman Catholics was the same thing. It was legalism, and legalism run amok. And it's typical how that people can become self-destructive whenever they turn away from God and they turn to their selves. Uh, there is nothing in self to look to but corruption, the scripture says that the heart is deceitfully wicked and it's never going to produce anything that's right with God. And so when you go to the well of the human heart to try to solve problems that exist man to man and problems nation to nation, you're never going to find the answer. You're only going to find more problems. And that's why we can never turn to the government as a solution to promote the faith of Christ. So you may think, well, what does all of that have to do with the book of Galatians? Well, it's this, that the existence of man is religious existence. I mean, no matter how you look at it, we're all controlled by our religion. Politicians want to divorce religion from the government. They want to separate Islam from terrorists. You can't do it. The atheist tries to separate himself from God, but he has a religion just like everybody else, and he's just as controlled as by that religion as anybody else is. And Galatians has bearing on this because what this book does is put us back at the very basic level. We're at the underlying cause of everything that we do when we come here. Because there is a moral code that is a way of living based on righteousness, and there's a moral code that is a way of living that's based upon unrighteousness. We're talking about evil versus good. We're talking about Satan versus God. We're talking about the cosmic conflict that actually caused Christ to come into the world in the first place. And you may not think of this in such global or spatial terms as I've given you just a moment ago, but these concepts are reduced to the personal level here because this is what it's all concerned about, your personal relationship with God. If you are a Christian, why are you a Christian? And if you're not a Christian, why aren't you a Christian? That's the fundamental thing. It's the fundamental thing of the existence of man. What is our relationship with God? Why is that so important? Well, it's important because your relationship with God is the chief thing that matters. As a matter of fact, if that's not right, nothing else does matter. Now, I want you to think about that as we read these scriptures, and you'll find two classifications of people that are talked about here, and only two. And it's possible to do away with every ethnic difference. It's possible for all those to be dissolved. It's possible for every national conflict to be resolved. It's possible for every social distinction between people to disappear. But the question is, how do we get from where we are to there? Uh, How do we get out of this turmoil that rules our lives and get into the perfect grace that we find in God and perfect peace? Well, the answer is actually in these verses. We look at the 22nd verse. I'll start reading there. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Last week, we took um, a little trip through a part of John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, and Bunyan's work is a... As an allegory of the Christian life, uh, it's a story about coming out from under the burden of, uh, and bondage of sin into the freedom that we have in Christ. There's a way that the pilgrim in that story became aware of how desperately that burden needed to be lifted, and it was when he became acquainted with the laws of Moses. It's when he realized that there was nothing that he could do to unburden himself, that he had to search out some other way to be relieved of the burden. The first part of Bunyan's book is about uh, the, the, the trip, Christians, the main character's trip to Mount Sinai, and that's followed up with his trip to Mount Calvary. And I read this part last week, but I'll read it once again to you. It says, "...he ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loose from off his shoulders, and fell from off his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to do, till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in, and I saw it no more." Now, you see, it was the law that led Christian to the cross. And that's the same thing that Paul is speaking of here in Galatians. The law brings us to the cross. The law brings us to the grace of God to lift the burden that we cannot lift by ourselves. Now, in in our scripture, the apostle Paul talks about how the law cannot help us. The Galatians were deceived into thinking that the law was the thing, that's what they were to look for, that's where they could find their help. But it can only do for them what it did for Christian in the story of Pilgrim's Progress. All they could ever do was to make the burden of sin that much heavier. All it could ever do is spell out the true condition of the heart and just show the, the inevitable, destru- inevitable destruction that's coming. So the law was given to show us that the promise of faith is indispensable for our salvation. So Paul continues that thought in verse number 23, and he gives another look at what the law does. That it grips us, that it holds us until its purpose is accomplished and until we're freed from its grip by our faith in Christ. Now, as we look into this text, I want to start with the bondage of the law. Number one is the bondage of the law. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. But before faith came. That's an interesting statement. What's Paul talking about when he says the faith? Is he talking about personal faith there? Whenever you see the word faith in Scripture, it's always good to see the context in which it's spoken and try to understand what the, what the writer is really talking about when he uses the word faith. Is he talking about personal faith? Is he talking about something else? When the Apostle Paul and Silas uh, interviewed the Philippian jailer and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There they were talking about personal faith. In the 11th verse of this chapter, where Paul quotes from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith, there he's speaking about personal faith or personal belief in Jesus Christ. But sometimes faith means the body of belief. In other words, it refers to the whole system of truth that we believe. So that if I speak on a particular doctrine like the atonement or uh, talk about justification or sanctification, about the church, about baptism, whenever I preach on those subjects, I am actually preaching the faith. And when faith is spoken of that way, usually it is preceded by the article the Jude uses faith that way in the third verse of the letter that he wrote when he said, earnestly contend for the faith. There he's talking about the body of faith, the whole whole body of what we believe as Christians. Well, here we see faith used both ways. We see faith without an article, and then we see faith preceded by an article. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith. So what does Paul mean when he says here faith or uses the faith? I think he's actually talking about Christ. In other words, he's talking about the object of our faith rather than faith itself. And we notice how that fits the context. If you substitute Christ for faith there, before Christ came, we were kept under the law. And that's the way the Jews were as he talks to them, that they were kept under the rituals of the law. That they kept up their sacrifices, they did all of the parts of the law that pointed to Christ, but then after Christ came, none of those things were any longer necessary. Circumcision was one of the laws that's included. Uh, Circumcision was an old covenant provision. And it was in place to keep Israel separate from its neighbors. But then when you get into the new covenant, we come under a new set of, of laws, you might say. We have a, the laws that, of, of Jesus Christ where the Gentiles are brought into the faith. And so there's no longer a need for circumcision. There is no separation. The object of the faith has come. And so all the Old Testament types are done away with. And now we're in, we have the reality But it's also evident that that Paul is speaking more than about just the ceremonial parts of the law. Now let me back up to something we studied a few weeks ago. This is in verse number 19, where he said, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, if you remember, I said if you compare that statement to what Paul says in Romans, where he's treating on the same subject, that it appears very confusing. Because it looks as if Paul is saying there was no sin until Moses gave the law. But we know that can't be true, because Adam sinned, and Cain sinned, and then the whole world was egregiously found in sin when God had to destroy it with the flood. And all of that came before the law. So in Romans, he explained that the Gentiles would not be judged by the Mosaic Law. They didn't have the Mosaic Law. But they were sinners nonetheless because they had violated the law that God wrote on their heart. And so whether God wrote it down on paper, whether on parchment, whether he wrote it on stone, whether he wrote it on the fleshly tables of the heart, it's still the same. There is no difference. All sinners are condemned. All are condemned and all will be judged. So how do we know that Paul is speaking here about more than just ceremonial aspects of the law? Well, you notice that there's a change in verse number 23. Before, he'd been speaking to the Jews and the Gentiles separately. He spoke of the covenant that was made with Abraham. He talked about the laws that Moses gave. But he, but He doesn't separate the two here. He says in verse 23, we, we were kept under the law. So he includes himself a Jew with the Gentiles that he's speaking to. So law then has to be a broader term than the Mosaic law, including moral laws and ceremonial laws. So he's speaking here of laws of any kind. So he's also speaking about laws that are written on the human heart. But he goes beyond that. He includes all other laws that are given. For instance, all the things that the scribes and the Pharisees added in their system, he includes that. He even goes beyond that and he comprehends something more because he also looks forward through time, from his time to our time, and he includes everything that we've ever put into the law or made a law over. So now you have to consider the rites and rituals of modern religion. You have to take into account all of those things that people do today. Here you have to take into account Roman Catholicism. You have to look at all their sacraments and all the hocus-pocus that they put into play. You also have to include the ritualistic Protestants and everything that they put in. And then also the legalistic Baptists and all they put in. So all of those laws Paul is talking about held us hostage. And we notice how he graphically puts this. He says we are kept under the law shut up. We're shut up. And do you know what he's saying there? What he's actually saying is that it's like being in the confinement of a prison. That the law has shut us up like being confined in a prison. It's locked us down. That's actually what the word kept means. It's used in this way like guards that are doing sentry duty. He states it in another way in verse 24 that we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, But this is also the same word that Peter used in 1 Peter 1 verse 5 where he said, and he's talking about Christians of course, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those that are saved are kept by the power of God. And that's a word that means we are garrisoned. It's a word that means that we are sentinel, that we are guarded by the power of God. Of God, And that's one of the reasons that you can't lose your salvation. It's because you are guarded day and night by the power of God. All of us as saved people are kept by him. Paul said, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So that's a great usage of that word, the word kept. And Paul uses it here to describe how the law does that to us. How the law keeps us in bondage. How it guards us. The law will not turn us loose. That it keeps us in a prison. It will never let us be saved by it. Just as Martin Luther said, uh, you can't rob God of the blessing of saving sinners. He's not going to let you do it. He doesn't want the law to do it. He wants everything for his glory. So it's like a city. That's guarded by sentinels like a jail. That's guarded by soldiers. The law shuts us up and holds us in. Now he's using that as a comparison of what it did to Israel. Now how much fun do you think it was for them to keep up with all the sacrifices that had to be made? How much do you think that they enjoyed going through all those yearly sacrifices and all the cleansings and all the different things that they had to do? Do you think that they really enjoyed just keeping up with all of that? And when Christ came, it was a relief. Or it should have been a relief to them. Now they did all those things because they were commanded to do them. And when they were spiritually healthy, it wasn't exactly like it was a burden to them. I mean, they wanted to obey God. They wanted to be pleasing to Him. And so they kept on doing them. But don't you think that it was a relief when Jesus came and finally He ends all sacrifices? And now they're not there blooding, blooding all the uh, themselves up and having to wash themselves up and kill animals and thousands of sacrifices being made? Do you not think that was a relief? Well, I think it would be. Christ fulfilled all of that, and I think that Christians were glad to get rid of all that. And what Paul is saying here is that he cannot believe that anybody would ever want to subject themselves to that again. In Colossians he says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. So he's saying, why do you want to get back under all that stuff again? Freedom from the law is great. Freedom from all the rituals and all these rites is great. And as a Christian... I don't want to be saddled with all of those things. I, I, don't want, I don't want to have to worry about a confessional booth. I don't want to have to do the rosary. I don't want to hear anything about penance and purgatory. I'm free in Jesus. So I don't want to subject myself to that. Why would I want to put on chains? And Paul's saying the same thing. Why do you want to go back and put on chains? Why do you want a religion that subjects us to all of that? So you see this? You know, sometimes Baptists are, are accused of having a very difficult salvation. And you know why? Because there are still some, some Baptists that try to live holy and righteous lives. And so people look at that and they say, you know, that's a hard way to live. Uh, I, I don't think that I want to live that way. It's hard to be saved that way because that's what they're thinking. This is the way you got saved. You changed your life. You did something different. And it's really hard to live a holy life. And what they don't realize is that we never did anything to get our salvation. That Jesus Christ did it all. And here they are complaining about our religion that's so hard while they're the ones that are saddled with all the legalistic requirements and they're all trying to be good enough to get to heaven. I don't want that. I don't want that yoke on my neck. I want to let Jesus do it because He's the only one that can. See, trying to be saved by the law is like climbing Mount Everest without any oxygen and pulling a Mack truck behind you. Why would you ever want to try it? Why do you want to do it? It doesn't make any sense. Well, Paul has another way of putting this in verse number twenty-four. Now he says the law shuts you in like a prison. It can find you. It won't turn you loose. And then if you want to put it another way, he says the law keeps you in custody. That the law is a custodian. That's the second way he puts it in verse 24. He says, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now this illustration that he gives is the correction of a pedagogos. The correction of a pedagogos. Now, you might be thinking, why in the world would you ever use a word like pedagogos? I mean, the text here says schoolmaster. So why do you want to cloud up the issue by bringing up a word that nobody knows? Well, the problem is that schoolmaster, in our King James Version, is a bad translation. It's an unfortunate translation. Now, most of the time, when the passage is preached, we leave the word schoolmaster, and we say, well, the law is like a teacher. The law is a teacher that brings us to Christ. Sometimes you see the word tutor used, but that's not exactly the meaning of the word. Other times you'll see people use the word pedagogue, and a pedagogue is a a person who educates children. That doesn't really convey what the New Testament meaning of this word is. So there isn't actually an English word that actually lines up exactly and matches with what Paul says. So rather than use the English word, there are many that just go back to the Greek and use the word pedagogos, the word that's here, and then just explain it because you're going to have to explain it anyway. So we just use this word, pedagogos. Well, what is a pedagogos? Well, those that Paul's speaking to would recognize it. Uh, he, he's going to the Roman world and he's using an illustration that people would understand that the Pedagogos is actually a slave. He's a trusted slave. He's a slave that's been given the responsibility of being the guardian of the child. Now, usually, these slaves were Greeks. Because the Romans liked the Greeks, they liked their philosophy, they liked their wisdom. Now personally they were crazy about Greeks, but they did like their philosophy, they did like their wisdom, they respected Greek culture because the Greeks were more refined than the Romans in many areas. Greek was also the international language, and so a Greek slave would know Greek, and so they would want their children, the Romans would want their children taught the Greek language, that's the international language. But the pedagogos had more than just the role of a teacher. The child was actually turned over to him for safekeeping. And he became a constant companion of the child. And so it was also his responsibility to teach him manners, to teach him etiquette, to be a moral guide for him. So how much do you think that a young man would like having the pedagogos with him every waking moment? How much would he like that? You know, children are filled with mischief. They, they don't like somebody to rule them. They don't like babysitters. There's none of us that likes to be told what to do. We don't like our hands slapped when we do the wrong thing. Now, I've never been to Catholic school, as you probably know, but I know all the stereotypes of the nuns that, that slap people's, the kids' hands when they do something wrong, wrap them with a the ruler. And that's what the pedagogos would do he was a disciplinarian he he was oftentimes cruel and these slaves the pedagogos was not often the friend of the child it wasn't a happy arrangement between the child and that slave and so that child was miserable until the day that he got free from that chain or that moral compass of the pedagogos But that's the slave's job. He has to deliver the child at the proper time, with the right education, with the right manners, the right morality, the right integrity. And so, the child, he's still a son of his father, he's still an heir to everything that the father has, but he's treated like a slave. He has no rights, he has no privileges, he's under all the guidelines and the restrictions of that pedagogos, and he has no freedom. Now, that's the real picture that Paul is trying to get across to the Galatians. He also used this term in 1 Corinthians. As we know, there was much sin in the church at Corinth, and the people at Corinth were tolerating the sin in their midst. And so Paul said to them, For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have not ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. You know, we don't often look at that scripture right. People have different, you know, reading it out of context or or trying to make it say something that Paul's not saying. But he uses the word instructors there. And it's the very same word that we have in the book of Galatians for schoolmaster. It's the word pedagogos. So when you put instructors there, it doesn't really convey the whole story of what Paul intends to say. So we can see in 1 Corinthians how he actually applies the meaning of pedagogos rather than instructor like we normally think of. And we find it in the 21st verse of the same chapter. He says, what will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Now the reason he said that is because I am an instructor, I am a pedagogos, the word is. And do you want me to come with the rod of the pedagogos? Or are you going to do what you should do? Do you want me to lower the boom of God's chastisement? Or will you do what you're supposed to do and let me entreat you as someone who loves you dearly in the right way? So that's the meaning of schoolmaster and the meaning of instructor and tutor. They don't really convey what Paul is actually trying to say, not our English words. So the law belongs to God. It's his trusted slave. It keeps us in check. It holds us down. Now, what's worse than being a slave? I think it would be being a slave to a slave. That would be worse. Now, that's what Paul's trying to get across here. It's like being a slave to the slave. You have to do everything the law tells you, one step out of line to the slightest degree, out of line, and the law comes down like a ruler across your knuckles. So how happy are you going to be living under the law? And you get the point that he's trying to make? I think the Galatians got it. Now again, Paul is showing them how stupid it is to climb back under the authority of a pedagogos. When you know that what he's going to do, he's just waiting to whack you because he knows that you're going to need it and more often than not you're going to need it. So why do you want to go back under that? And this is why you see that Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you." And so he's saying somebody is really messing with your minds. If you think that it's better being a slave, a slave to the law, rather than having freedom in Christ, there's something wrong with you. Now, the slave has done his job. He does his job. He hands the child over. And when he does, the child is given his full rights and privileges as a free man. Now, he was, he's ready then to be the heir of his father. He can handle the responsibilities of it. And this is the same thing that happens when we trust Christ, that when we come to him in faith, we're handed over to him through faith in his blood, and he frees us from condemnation. And we are the heirs of the inheritance that God has promised us. So you see the point that Paul is trying to make here? It's not a point about education. And it's not a point that the law was given to help us to better understand Christ. The law was not given to help us to understand Christ. It doesn't give us knowledge of Christ. So what does it do? Well, we learn this, Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law teaches us about sin, not about Christ. And that's why you're never going to be saved by just reading the law if that's all that you ever have. Just like Christian in the story, if all he has is the law and nothing else, he's never going to be saved because the law is not going to give him knowledge of Christ. The only thing it does is point out our sin, our guilt, and our condemnation, and it tells us you better look someplace else. You better try to find the answer someplace else because the law is no help to freedom. So if you go up to the and you say, now you old buzzard, let me go. Take off the shackles. Well, he just swats you across the mouth once again because that's all he's ever going to do. So the law is not something that you want to buddy up to and make pals with unless you don't mind getting cracked on the head every now and then. That's what it's good for. Now Paul uses that example to show cringing submissiveness. And he shows us how miserable it is to live under a tyrant. And that slave master, the law, is a tyrant. It's cruel. Then he says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So there came a time when the child was done with the pedagogos. He's free from the ball and chain. He now has a new position. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. We're going to talk about what happens when you're free from the pedagogos. We don't have to live under the tyranny any longer. Now, he, he just shows us how miserable a comforter he truly is. And he does the job well. He does exactly what he's supposed to do. Don't ask him to do what he's not supposed to do. Don't ask him for what he was never intended to do. The Pedagogos is not going to set you free, so it's no better than a slave going up to another slave and saying, Could you please give me a, a, an emancipation proclamation? It won't happen. The, the, the law is God's instrument. And if you try to use God's instrument, you're going to be hurt by it. It'll use you until you're used up. Now, let me go back to the beginning just very briefly. The problem with every natural man and woman is that they're walking along with the pedagogos every day. And they're trying to be friends with the pedagogos. Islam, Buddhism, false Christianity, all of them buddy up to the pedagogos and, and that just really makes for stupid, unhappy people. So peace on earth? They say, well, peace on earth? Let's go see the pedagogos. And so the pedagogos entertains presidents and prime ministers and the United Nations. And when they try to come to him, he just sits there. And they're wanting the pedagogos to do something. Let's change things. And he just says to them, what fools you are. Come over here let me just slap you in the mouth. I'm not here for that. I can't give you peace on earth. We can't have peace between men. We can't do this. So he hears people singing all the time. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And we are the world. We are the children. Listen to these words of that great theologian and lover of children, Michael Jackson. He said, there comes a time, there comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. There are people dying, and it's time to lend a hand to give the greatest gift of all. We can't go on pretending day by day that someone somehow will soon make a change. We're all a part of God's great big family, and the truth, you know, love is all we need. Now, you all recognize the song I'm reading, don't you? You know, we are the world. I don't know how many copies that thing sold, but listen, to, listen. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true. We'll make a better day, just you and me. Send them your hearts so they'll know that someone cares, and their lives will be stronger and free. As God has shown us, by turning stones to bread, so we all must lend a helping hand. Where did he get that? Jesus refused to turn stones into bread. Great, the, great theology right there. When you're down and out and there seems no hope at all, but if you just believe there's no way we can fall, let us realize that a change can only come when we stand together as one. So there you have it. The whole world is going to the pedagogos trying to make things right. But we notice they're still killing each other still goes on every day and it will continue to do so until somebody says we can't do this we cannot save our own lives we can't make a better day only jesus christ can and he's the solution to this so the faith has come paul says and what we must do is go to jesus christ and be justified by faith let's pray father thank you for your word Uh, thank you for everyone who came tonight to. Hear the message. Lord, help us to learn this lesson that that we can't find any hope inside of us. We can't find anything that will make us better or do anything for anybody. All of our sufficiency is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can take care of things for us. Help us, Lord, to trust you at all times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California.